Hey, Vista. I uh, want to welcome you uh, to a little bit of different offering this Sunday. We are, uh, we are jumping into this series, just our second week of the Bless 10 series. And uh, this series is kind of conceptualized as a church-wide study. Uh, we're working our way through a book called Bless 10. And uh, this book has been, uh, the content of this book has been just really essential to the life of our church, the rhythm of our church over the last decade. And uh, so we're very excited about this chance to study it together, walk through it together, think about the implications of the content of this book as we, uh, as we strive to lean into what God has for us. Uh, and to that end, we're mixing things up just slightly here. We're uh, trying to give a little bit more direct content uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, the message here instead of more of a conversational approach because we want to support our groups uh, we really believe and are, are thankful for the work that God is doing in those groups. And we just want to support them as much as we can, uh, be as open to what God is doing in those spaces as we can be. Uh, and so uh, this is a, a message that we hope will support uh, your study, the church that is studying what it will look like uh, to join in with the work of God. Uh, before we actually dive into the content for this week, just a couple of reminders. Uh, one is we would love to hear from you. Uh, there's a couple of different ways you could do that. One is the, the Connect Cards. Uh, that's available uh, online at Vista Community Church uh, website. Uh, there's, there's also a way that you could do this just below the video. You can maybe comment on the video, let us know uh, ways that we can support you, ways that we can um, take care of you. Uh, we love that part of our mission, taking care of you. Uh, so if there are things that we can do, please don't hesitate to ask. Uh, it would be our joy. It would be, it would be a real blessing for us to get to actually take care of you in those ways. Um, and just one more reminder besides kind of connecting with us and uh, giving us some insight into how we can support you. One more reminder is that next Thursday uh, is a chance for us to gather together and worship. Uh, we really believe that's essential to the lifeblood of the church is to join together, lifting our voices together uh, to worship. And that will, that's going to take place on April 29th. That's Thursday evening. Uh, the worship leaders at Vista are in the habit of meeting together on Thursday evenings in prayer, in preparation, in praise. And uh, they have the, the, the really blessed chance to do that so often that they love to invite people into that space. That's what's happening on April 29th. Uh, if you uh, have that space open, uh, I can't encourage you any more forcefully. Just, uh, I would love to see that you could uh, join those people and lifting up your voice too. And, and uh, I hope coming away encouraged in the, the work that God's doing in your life. But like I said, for us today, we're working on Bless 10. Uh, this is a series that was just introduced by Pastor Mike uh, in person and, of course, the recording last week. Uh, and so we're in week two. Uh, we're ready to launch into this acrostic. Uh, this acrostic is one we've been traveling with, like I said, for 10 years, maybe more, actually. I lose count quite easily. But I would say it's been at least a decade where we've been thinking and praying along these lines. And you're probably familiar uh, at, uh, at this point with the acrostic, but if you're new to us or uh, whatever else, we, we, we want to invite you into this journey because this acrostic is shaping uh, the ways we get to join with God. So, so what is the acrostic? Bless 10. It starts with B. That's where we are today. B means begin with prayer. Uh, as we move forward, 
there's the, the, the other letters of the acrostic that we're going to travel with and uh, Pastor Mike's going to weigh in on. And, and you'll hear different voices from with the church as, as they lean into these letters like listen to others, uh, the eat together, uh, to serve one another, to, to share your story. This, uh, this, this acrostic is something we're going to be working with for a few weeks now. But it's my joy to lean into this idea of beginning with prayer. Um, as we, as we hope to expand the garden, to expand the kingdom of God, to push the edges of the gospel outward even further, uh, to travel with God as he does that, uh, we want to begin with prayer. Uh, and as the week is begin with prayer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin with a story. Uh, not much of a story, actually more like a little bit of insight into, into me, uh, into, into my life, because I think this insight was helpful to me. I learned a lot about how to relate to others uh, due to this sort of little anecdote. Um, it may be uh, sort of hard to discern or hard to tell, but I used to play some basketball. Uh, it's probably less and less obvious as the years turn over, but I did really, really enjoy playing basketball. Um, uh, competitive as can be, and just enjoyed the, the competition, enjoyed being on a team enjoyed uh, leaning into maximizing whatever limited skill set I had and just uh, just found joy in it. But one thing that was actually uh, a little bit interesting and challenging as, as my basketball career, quote unquote, went on was uh, that uh, my, my external posture did not actually really match my internal uh, reality. Um, and that was actually, I think, fairly confusing for people. Uh, on the outside, I projected a certain amount of confidence. Uh, I, I sort of, I think, walked with confidence, spoke with confidence. I looked like a guy who had a ton of confidence. Uh, and for that reason, my coaches actually coached me as though I had a lot of confidence. Um, and I don't blame them because how could they have known better? This is what I was projecting. But the truth is my internal reality was something quite different. In fact, whatever the opposite of confidence is, that's what I was as a basketball player. I, I completely lacked confidence. Uh, like I said, on the outside, it, I don't think that would be very discernible. You know, I was the kind of player that responded well to, you know, the rah-rah moments from the coaches and even somebody kind of getting on me. I responded with, with great effort if somebody yelled at me and, 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 and sort of pushed me for more. And so I, I imagine that it seemed as though confidence was, you know, one of the skills that I possessed, but it simply wasn't. It just wasn't. So uh, what would happen is this sort of vicious cycle. I would be coached as though I had confidence. And because I was being coached as though I had confidence, I would have less and less confidence because I would just be responding in this way that I just sort of crumbled. Uh, you, you can't imagine how poorly I began to shoot the basketball because I just had zero confidence. And, and, and like I said, it's, it's, it's not really my coach's fault. They, they couldn't have known. They, they, they certainly didn't know me well enough to know better. If they, had, if they had known, I imagine they would have maybe coached me a little differently than they did. But I think that's actually really interesting to, to, to sort of pause and think about how different their approach to me would have been if they had known me better. If they had known what was true of, of me internally. And I, I imagine that this is actually true, a principle that probably makes a big difference in the way that we relate to people all the time. I imagine there are moments where I'm in the classroom teaching and I'm teaching this student as though they're one thing, but in fact, they're the other. 
where maybe as a coach, somebody is coaching as though one thing is true of their player and just really the opposite is true. Parenting, uh, interacting with business partners or customers, and all the time missing the mark in that relationship because we're simply interacting uh, with a person that we don't know as well as we ought to. Uh, But I I know one who doesn't make those kinds of mistakes. I I know one who who actually doesn't mistake one person for being confident when in fact they're the other. His name is Jesus. I think you probably have heard of him. Uh, I want to remind you of a story where we see exactly that Jesus always responds to everybody exactly how they needed to be responded to. I want to remind you that he knew everybody perfectly. The story that comes to mind for me where he knew exactly what his people needed in the moment that they needed it. It's the story of Mary and Martha, uh, these sisters who were grieving actually in this story. This is John 11. Uh, In John 11, these two sisters are grieving because their beloved brother Lazarus has died. Not just beloved to them either, it's Jesus' friend. Uh, The insight that we're given in scripture leads us to believe that Mary and Martha are really actually supporting Jesus's ministry, probably financially, at least physically, uh, giving him meals and a place to stay and support emotionally, all these things. And now Lazarus has died. Now Jesus makes the decision in John 11 to return uh, to, to the home of Mary and Martha to Bethany. And they, uh, this is an interesting decision because actually Jesus Uh, had almost been killed last time he was there, as we're reminded by the text. But uh, if you you follow this text, we find that Jesus actually arrives back to the home of his friends, but it's too late. Lazarus is sick and he has died. He's passed away. And there is a pretty significant group of mourners. We're we're told that because Bethany is so close to Jerusalem, many Jewish friends have come. Many Jewish family members have come to, to mourn alongside Mary and Martha. And Jesus is joining that crowd. He's joining in with the mourning that's going on. He himself, a mourner. He himself grieving the loss of Lazarus. But what I'm struck by in this passage is this. He's approached as he's coming into town. He's actually approached by Martha. And Martha says, you know, basically this. Lord, if you hadn't, if you had been here, If you hadn't been late, if you hadn't been two days late, if you had been here on time, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus gives her an answer. And this is obvious because Jesus has answers. It's remarkable. He always has answers. Uh, Actually, that means we should pay attention really, uh, really closely when he doesn't give an answer, when he listens instead. But here he gives an answer, and he talks about the glory that's going to come to God and the way that she's going to see the resurrection with fresh eyes because of this moment. Okay, that makes sense. Jesus gives a great answer. He's, you know, God. That's, that makes perfect sense. But what strikes me is that, that, that he presses further in, and now he's interacting with Mary, another beloved disciple of his. And she says almost verbatim the actually, actually the same thing. She says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And what I'm struck by is the fact that Jesus gives a different answer to Mary. Now, as a teacher, I'm asked the same questions quite often. 
I can anticipate from period to period what the questions are going to be. I can anticipate from year to year what the questions are going to be. Guess what? I give the same answer almost every time. But not Jesus. Jesus doesn't doesn't take the square answer and try to fit it in the round hole. Jesus knows the questioner. It's not just that he knows and anticipates the question. He knows the person who's asking the question. This is so essential because what it means is he gives the answer not only that is true, but it's, it's postured and positioned exactly as they needed it to be. Martha got exactly what she needed that day, as did Mary, because what, what Mary got was Jesus weeping alongside her. Imagine, imagine having that kind of insight as we're trying to, as we're trying to press forward the mission of God, as we're, as we're trying to, as we're trying to gather up our lost brothers and sisters in the world and bring them home. Imagine having that kind of insight, the insight of Jesus, who is uh, the, the, the son of, of Yahweh, the, the, the son of the one who sees us. Like in Genesis chapter 16, when, when Yahweh sees Hagar, and he, he sees her uh, hiding in the desert. He sees this lonely slave girl alone in the desert. And, and, he, and he plucks her out and he rescues her. And she, sees you are, she says, you are El Roy. You saw me. You saw me. She said, I see the one who saw me. Imagine having that kind of insight when trying to advance the mission of God. Imagine having the kind of insight of Jesus when he meets Nathaniel, the skeptic. Nathaniel, who, who said, does anything good come out of Nazareth just before meeting Jesus? Imagine having the kind of insight of Jesus who says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. I know you. It was enough to turn Nathaniel's cynicism into, into openness. As he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, Nathaniel knew this is the one who sees me. He's the one who knows me. Imagine having that kind of insight. Imagine forgetting that we have a relationship with the one who has that kind of insight. Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 10, when he's sending 72 people out to do the very thing that we're talking about as a church, he sends the 72 people out on mission to advance the mission of God, to gather in the lost brothers and sisters and bring them home. He says to them, as he sends them out, talking about how plentiful the harvest is, he says, listen, you need to ask the Lord of the harvest. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 2. He sends them, as he's sending them, he says, listen, begin with prayer. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Begin with prayer. There's, there's an obvious logic to it. The Lord of the harvest is the one who knows the, the, the ones that are being brought home in the harvest. He's the one who knows them. So, so, so lean into him. Begin with prayer to him as he grants you insight into his beloved ones who maybe have been away from home for too long. I think the early church took this to heart. I hope that the I hope the present church will will take it to heart. But I know the early church did. Look at look at Acts chapter two verse twenty four, just after uh, this really Im Im amazing moment of Pentecost. By the way, which actually began with prayer. 
right? You see in Acts chapter 2, the disciples are gathered. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and now they're waiting for the Spirit. They're, they're meditatively, prayerfully waiting for the Spirit, and the Spirit comes in power, and Peter speaks and, and many are added to their number that day. They began with prayer. And guess what? The people that were gathered in by the speech that Peter gave at Pentecost, those people dedicated themselves to prayer. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 24. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to prayer. Yes, I think the logic is obvious of this. Why is this so essential? Why is this so impactful? I think it's because of what prayer really is. Why begin with prayer? Why does Jesus encourage us to begin with prayer? Why do we see people beginning with prayer and then the Spirit moving? Why do we see that kind of impact? Because of what prayer is. Prayer is joining in with the heavenly conversation. The the, the Christian story asserts, rightfully, truthfully asserts, that, that heaven is a community. Not just in the fact that God is, God is gathering people to him in community, but also God himself is community. The Trinity is a community. There has been conversation going on in heaven for all eternity. As, as the three persons of the Trinity defer to one another, listen to one another, speak to one another, this perfect community has been in conversation for all eternity. And guess what? We're invited to join in. That's what prayer is. Prayer is joining in with the heavenly conversation. I hope mostly to listen from time to time. It will mean to speak as God has given us a voice. He expects us to speak with this voice. But if you think about where where this heavenly conversation starts to overlap with earth, you can see that we're invited to join in. Maybe it's looking at Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, what we see about the Spirit, we know that those are led, who are led by the Spirit, those are the children of God. And what we see about the Spirit when we get to verses 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 8 is this, that the Spirit intercedes for us. In this heavenly conversation, when, when our words are lost to us, the Spirit intercedes, speaks on our behalf. And it's not just the Spirit that intercedes for us and helps draw us into the conversation that's going on in heaven. It's Jesus too. Whether that's John 17 where he's praying for us and he's talking about us being one with him the way Jesus is one with the Father. Or or whether it's Hebrews 7 where we find out that Jesus, our true high priest, is interceding for us always because he's the living one. We find that we're invited into this heavenly conversation. And this prayer, this invitation to being a part of the heavenly conversation is impactful. It does change everything on the trajectory of this this acrostic, this journey we're on, Bless 10, where we're joining in with God and the mission of God. It changes everything. Here's here's how I like to put it. I like to say with, with prayer, with joining in with the heavenly conversation, there's an internal impact. There's an external impact. And there's an eternal impact. I hope that when we look at the internal, external, and eternal impact, we'll be, uh, we'll be renewed in our commitment to joining in with the heavenly conversation as, as often as we can. 
as, as Scripture teaches us, without ceasing. We get to join in with the heavenly conversation without ceasing, constantly, constantly. Let's talk about internal. The internal impact of joining in with this heavenly conversation as we begin with prayer. Uh, I think it can be seen, for instance, in John 15, a really famous passage where Jesus is giving sort of final instructions to the disciples. Uh, he's spent three years with them, and now he's cramming a whole lot in on the last couple evenings. And some of the reminders that he's uh, given, given them in these moments are reverberating throughout history uh, as they're recorded in the Gospels and then uh, brought to mind forcefully by the Spirit and, and, and by the, those who are gifted as teachers uh, throughout the history of the church. We're reminded again and again of John 15, where Jesus says, listen, abide in me. Abide in me. Stay connected to me. In this heavenly conversation, stay connected to me. Imagine this abiding that had been taking place, I think, for, for three years, at least for these disciples, we think, right? We think that we have this three-year period where they're, where they're walking with Jesus. Uh, some people describe the rabbinical style of teaching of, as, as eating the dust of the rabbi, literally following him wherever he goes. And the dust that he kicks up is the dust that covers his students. They, they eat his dust. They follow him that closely. They abide in him. And, and I imagine that, that, in a sense, over those three years, as they abide in him, there's a very, uh, very important impact on their internal reality. They begin to love the things that Jesus loves as they abide in him. Uh, you, may, you may have some insight into how much of a journey that was. You think about people like Peter, still swinging swords three years later. He had a long journey ahead of him as he, as he came to have a different internal reality altogether as he abided in Jesus, as the fruits of the Spirit took root in his soul because he had been participating in this heavenly conversation in person with Jesus and then, of course, afterwards in prayer. What we see is this internal change where our will bends to the will of Jesus. That's the internal change of beginning with prayer. Imagine if our will begins to bend to the will of Jesus. Imagine if we had eyes to see the way Jesus had eyes to see. Imagine the impact of how we, as we move forward into the mission of God, how that might change. Jesus bent his will to the Father's will. We see that in all four Gospels. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, if, if this cup could just pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. He says it in prayer. Imagine that that's the exact thing available to us as we pray. Like in Romans chapter 12, it says that if we worship him as, we, as a living sacrifice, if we're constantly in conversation with him through our worship of him and our prayer, then we can begin to discern his will. Our internal reality begins to change. But this has also an external, an external impact. John 15 again, the same passage that said, abide in me, also said, those who do abide in me, those who do love me, those who are actually impacted by the life-giving relationship with Jesus, with the Spirit, those people obey his commandments. There's an external change that began with an internal reality. It's easy to see in Scripture. It's actually, it's actually easy to see in Scripture. Uh, look at Acts chapter 8. What do we see here? We see Philip praying 
He's beginning with prayer. He's meditating along the road. And what happens? The, the Ethiopian, headed away from Jerusalem and back home to Ethiopia, uh, is going along in a chariot. And, and, and in this prayer, God says, now's the time for the external reality to change too. That's the one I want you to speak with. Philip gets up, not knowing what's about to happen next, running alongside a chariot, and the Ethiopian and Philip begin to converse about the passage that he happens to be reading, Isaiah 53. There's this external uh, obedience. There's a change that began with prayer in Philip as he joins in with the mission of God. Actually, you don't have to go much further uh, to see it again. Look in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, of course, we see the very famous rescue of Paul. Uh, some scholars believe that Paul would have himself actually been in meditation as he's journeying from Jerusalem to Damascus. There's every reason to believe that that's true of this pious Jewish person, that he would have been meditating on Scripture prayerfully himself, and then God moves in his life. But I'm actually interested in what happens with Ananias. You know the man. Ananias is in Damascus. He's a leader of the church there and certainly uh, was afraid of Paul. He had every reason to be afraid of Paul. Paul was murderous. Paul was an enemy of the church. And in prayer, in a vision, God says to Ananias, I need you to welcome Paul in. I imagine there was a lot of internal struggle there, but look how the external reality changed. Ananias welcomed in the enemy of the church. In fact, helped uh, to, to restore Paul to sight. Allow God to use him as the instrument to restore Paul to sight. There's an external change here in the actions. <clears throat> what about Acts chapter 10, 8, 9, 10? Acts chapter 10, guess what Peter's doing? He's praying. It begins with prayer. He's praying on his rooftop. And God brings to mind uh, this radical change that he's interested in. And the vision is, is, is very famous. It's, it's the uh, blanket coming down from heaven, the sheet coming down from heaven with all these types of animals and God saying, don't you dare call unclean what I have called clean. The implications being that we're about to get real. <laughs> we're about to start to move the message further afield. There's going to be an external change. We're headed into the hills, right? We're after the Gentiles, let's go. And what does Peter do? Because he had been praying, because his internal reality had been changed, now his external reality is different too. And he is obedient, welcoming in Cornelius and his servants, and then announcing to the church in Jerusalem that God is on about something new. And he's actually brought a new external reality to bear. There is now something new happening, uh, happening in and through the church as their external realities change as they think and now act differently towards the Gentiles. I think there's a principle that could sum up what we've talked about so far. Why do we begin with prayer? Well, we can see there's internal and external realities that change. Uh, our friend Pavi <clears throat> over at Heritage Christian Church likes to say it this way. He says, yes, immerse yourself in the, in the, in the Spirit of God and then improvise. You, you think Philip knew exactly how he was going to strike up that conversation with the eunuch, with, with the Ethiopian? How do you start that conversation? I have no idea. How do you start any conversation? I don't know. Right? But Philip is able to. He's immersed in the Spirit of God, and then he improvises. How does Ananias answer the door to the now blind Paul? Hi, Paul. I knew you are trying to kill me, but come and make yourself comfortable. How does that happen? 
you immerse yourself in the Spirit of God and then you improvise. What about Peter? Uh, we have this Roman, Cornelius, knocking on his door, his servants knocking on his door. I was afraid of you my whole life, my whole life. Now I embrace you. How does that happen? Immerse yourself in the Spirit of God and then improvise. And this has an eternal impact. We begin with prayer because there's an internal, external, and eternal impact. In Acts 11, what we find out when Paul, sorry, when Peter is explaining to the Jerusalem church what's different now, they rejoice. <clears throat> they say this to finish that passage in Acts 11. So then, the Gentiles also were granted the repentance that leads to life. Celebration. An eternal life. An, e an eternal change. This eternal change, which we can see as an arc that's, that's headed for, bending towards Revelations chapter 7, or maybe you could do seven, uh, 21 instead if you'd like. Because what do we see in both those passages? We see a great multitude. In Revelations chapter 7, verse 9, we see a great multitude gathered around the throne uh, from every nation, tribe, people, language. They're standing around the throne, gathered around the one thing that's worth gathering around. And that dream, which becomes a reality, it began with prayer. It, it, was, it was a dream of God's first. God's dreams always come true. You know that? God's dreams always come true. But part of his dream was that his people would share his dream. I can tell you, Philip, Ananias, Peter, Paul, these men, they didn't share that dream to start with. They too had to begin with prayer so that their internal realities would change. Then their external obedience would come into alignment with their internal realities and then there would be eternal impact. God's dreams are coming true. His dream that we see on display all throughout scripture, but maybe we could look at Genesis 12 with Abraham's call and he says, listen, I'm going to bless you and everybody's going to be blessed through you. That dream announced in Genesis 12 is going to be a reality. And it's going to be a reality when God's people begin with prayer. Because when we begin with prayer and our internal realities change and our external obedience change and we have the chance to participate in this eternal impact, what we find is that our dreams change too. We find out we're the sent ones. When we begin with prayer, we remember again that we're the sent ones, like Moses like Jonah, like Paul was, like Chloe and Junia and Priscilla before us. Yes, we are the sent ones. We begin with prayer. We gather together for worship. We, we begin with prayer. We gather together for worship, and then we scatter for the vocation that we've been chosen for, that we're the sent ones. We're joining God in the harvest of his long-lost children, our long-lost brothers and sisters. Yeah, we begin with prayer to the one who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Because, just like it says in Hebrews, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Logically, obviously, if he's the author and perfecter of our faith, he's the author and the perfecter of the next person's faith too. Maybe, maybe we should begin with prayer with the one who sees that next one. Who, who sees them while they're still a long way off. He is El Roy. He's the perfecter of our faith, and he's El Roy. He sees us, and he sees the next one too. So we should begin with prayer. We should begin with prayer to allow him to shape us internally 
and then externally for his eternal purposes. We have every reason to begin with prayer to the one who saw us while we were still a long way off and now is helping us to see the next one who may still be a long way off, but with Jesus and abiding in Jesus and the insight that Jesus has and and the heart that Jesus has that's expansive. Anyone from any direction, from any distance can be welcomed home. That's what we're dreaming about here. Dreaming about a place where people from every distance and every direction are welcome here. Welcome to join in with the heavenly conversation. The heavenly conversation that we have such a privilege to be a part of. That we begin and end with. That we constantly join in with without ceasing. We begin with prayer. Amen.